on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. I was watching the show, and on the show, there's like this treasure chest they're opening. And the treasure chest was wrapped in plastic, and the treasure chest itself was made of plastic. And when they opened it up, there was like 10 toys on the top rack, and they were all wrapped in plastic in a plastic shell, and then the toy itself was plastic. And then they pulled the rack out after opening all this plastic and having plastic garbage everywhere. There was like another like 20 more toys, all wrapped in plastic in a plastic shell with a plastic toy inside of it. And I was sitting there thinking like, if this is the future of for our children, like, we're in trouble. There's got to be something that we can do. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover, and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Evolve. Today's guest bootstrapped from zero to 2.5 million in monthly revenue in only 17 months while waging war against plastic. After a career of growing several premium subscription boxes to multi-million dollar businesses, a serial entrepreneur decided to create a subscription, zero waste environmentally friendly laundry strip that completely eliminates the need for heavy plastic detergent jugs. With roughly 85,000 active subscribers in 45 different countries, they have collectively kept over 2 million plastic jugs out of landfills, donated well over 2 million loads of laundry to vulnerable families in Canada, the US, and Ghana, and skyrocketed to the second fastest growing startup in Canada this year. But the success of eight-figure monthly run rates has not always been the norm. Starting in the 90s, this entrepreneur has seen the heights of success, getting hundreds of thousands of subscribers, generating six and seven figures of month in revenue, and the lows of losing it all, working out in an ice-cold garage in the Canadian winter, and rationing out discount ground beef for his family for the week. Despite the ups and downs, the lessons learned in this 20-year career helped him design a subscription model around this laundry eco-strip initially aiming to sign on 150 customers and landing him with an astonishing 1,500 in the very first month. This disruptive startup and innovative founder has been featured in dozens of media outlets and his written content has been read by more than 100 million readers. Additionally, their viral sensation, Things You Should Never Mix With Water, has been viewed over 16 million times. I'm honored to welcome the co-founder of True Earth, 20-year marketing veteran and co-star in the infamous Piranha Plant Brothers, Ryan <laughs> Oh man, I'm so flattered. That's amazing. I never told you any of that stuff. That, that's impressive. The, the, the ground beef rationing and my son uh, is going to be excited to hear that the Piranha Plant pals got, got a shout out. That's he's, he's six and that's his, tells me that's, I'm going to make lots of money. I'm going to have my, our video game channel is going to get so many visitors. That's that's awesome. Yeah, you have my hair standing up. It's still standing up. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, before we get to some of the questions about your story, you know, based off all your experience, you know, you had mentioned your son and he's obviously a big thing in your life. What kind of lessons have you been teaching him about entrepreneurship? You know, it's, it's funny. He actually, like every once in a while we'll be driving and like, I was joking around one time talking about economics to him. I have no like formal education in economics, but I was like explaining like supply and demand. And I was explaining it in like a way at his school where like everybody has like a bake sale and trying to see who can sell the most. And, you know, if you want to, if you want people to want your product more, don't put it all out on the counter and maybe just show, just show a couple. And then you're going to have people competing over to get those since they seem like they're, they're more rare. 
I was joking around telling him that in the car one day. And then he started to like, actually like, tell me something more about like the, these different things and like persuasion. And my, my wife's probably like rolling her eyes in, in the passenger seat. <laughs> like, 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 I don't need to hear this. And my daughter doesn't care. My, my other son's a baby, but he, he loves it. I mean, I don't know whether or not he's going to be entrepreneurial or what, but it's, it's pretty cool when they're like six years old. He was probably five when he started like ask you like, tell me more about like this concept. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, if you could learn that stuff that young, you're probably going to, I don't know, probably have some success at least persuading people in your school to listen to your ideas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you started pretty young in the 90s, like building web pages and HTML pages. What drew you to the internet and wanting to start making money on there? When I was a kid, I loved video games from like the time I can remember being at like a flea market and like begging my uncle like crying for him to buy me an Atari there that was a flea market. And I was crying and I, I, I guess it worked. I, I learned a few persuasion techniques at like five, but uh, he got me this Atari and then my parents got me Nintendo. And I thought at least when I was a kid that everybody played video games a lot. And then that kind of just turned into computers probably around like, I'm, I'm 39. So it would have been like late 80, like 89, 90. My parents got a computer, like a PC. And mm-hmm. we had like Max in school and, and stuff like that. And I was lucky enough when I was a kid to get put into a couple of computer classes, actually with one of my co-founders, Kevin Hinton. There's Kevin and there's Brad, but Kevin and I have known each other since kindergarten. And we were put in these computer classes before everybody was really in computers. And, you know, when I was like nine or 10, I started getting into to that stuff. And my dad was into tech. So we had BB, going on like BBSs, which were like, like dial-up modem, like bulletin board services. They're like super nerdy things and I loved it though. When I was a teenager, I always wanted to either like be a computer programmer or, you know, something like that. And it's funny because I played sports and stuff too, but I definitely was more, I don't want to say like nerdy because I don't, I don't want to like put a negative connotation to it. But like I, I loved, I just love computers. I love tech and I love the idea of entrepreneurism. And I, anyways, one day my dad got this CD or sorry, it was a disc. It was for this, we had the internet and we couldn't really do too much on it at the time. It wasn't even like web browsers. It was the closest thing to a web browser was this thing called Turbo Gopher. But uh, he brought this disc home one day and it was a disc for this software called Mosaic. And it's basically turned into Netscape and then Netscape turned into Firefox. That was the first time you could kind of see like visuals on your webpage. So of course I was into like visual basic and basic computer programming. So I got him to get me this book at a Safeway. It was a magazine and it was like an HTML book. And it was like how to write basic HTML and learned a little bit of that and started digging around at viewing source on other people's sites and put together these little GeoCities web pages, which eventually got bought by Yahoo. And there was like little friendly competitions between some of my techie buddies on who could get the most views to their page. And like, you know, it just kind of continued to evolve from there. And so this kind of started your career in, you know, marketing in web pages. I mean, you got into the ringtone business, Mm -hmm. which, you know, didn't end too well. Can you kind of share the story of the rise and fall of that and the lessons you learned there? Yeah. So like we did a bunch of, we did like affiliate marketing before. And one of the companies that we we were working with, it was called Azugal. And my rep at the time who actually passed away, we'd gone to California for this ad tech conference. And he told me, you're not going to get into the ringtones, the ringtone business. It's like, it's way too, way too many people in that space. I don't know if you remember or know who Jeremy Schumacher is, but he was a big internet guru back in the early mid 2000s. And he had posted some check with, from ringtones. So anyways, we're like, we can do it. So we, you know, we started making this affiliate site for ringtones. 
And we eventually went up working with another partner who had a platform and uh, we built that up and it got pretty big. And they wanted to run, they wanted to run into some legal troubles with, as pretty much everybody did that was in that space because it was built in a really weird way. Like your cell phone bill would get the charge and you can't really control who uses your cell phone. So I guess kids, some kids right. were winding up doing it. Anyways, they got sued and I don't even know where that whole thing is, but. Yeah, it fell apart. And that was kind of the first major fall from grace. As an entrepreneur, how did you decide to get back up again, go back out there and try different things? After that, we're like, okay, we wanna we want to provide value. Because you know, I did a lot of SEO, I did a lot of SEO in the first seven years of the two thousands. And what I just kept on finding is that Google would change their algorithm and like there was no best practices, right? So like whatever you did, whatever loophole you found to, to help rank. They would wind up clogging it, and then they would like also flush you down with the the new update. So I it was like three or four times that I had been like basically reset. There's like blog posting services that would literally create blogs and, and and post links to you, and it was legit. And then that you know that you eventually got penalized for that. So we're like, okay, we want to do something that like creates value and isn't just a means to to make money. And so we launched this info barrel site, which was a place where people could contribute content. And they didn't have to market it, and they would generate seventy-five percent of the revenue that their content earned. And that again, that blew up again, and it was primarily fed by Google. But then Google started cracking the whip on you know things that were allowed and things that weren't allowed, and like you had to control the links that were pointed to your site. And some of the people that were writing were also you know using different schemes to get links to the site. Anyways, the site wound up getting penalized again, and I'm really lucky because. Through that period, it was a really tough, like I've had a bunch of periods like that that were really tough. And like I was working, selling cell phones at the same time we were trying to build this out, and I was kind of getting to the end of being able to like work every night selling cell phones and on the weekends and do this all day. It was just like like killing me. And we were working with who's my partner Brad now. He had a couple sites, uh, a Canadian traveler site, and we had Info Barrel. And he had talked to this other guy, and they asked if we were interested in doing a merger. And our software would be what we used to, for all these magazines. And I had stopped selling cell phones and I had got a job working at the port, which paid fairly well. And I was just like, I just don't need this up and down battle anymore. <laughs> like, it's just so stressful. And I can remember like being in the bottom of a steel ship, like a big, those huge ships, like hooking anchors onto like metal to get lifted out of these boats. And it was paying me like 50 bucks an hour. So I'm like, well, you know, this is a lot. I get to go home when I'm done this and I don't have to think about anything else. And I was, I was very close to being, I was very, very close to being done. And I'm really happy that I stuck it out. But it's interesting because when you're on top, you'd feel like you're never going to fall from grace. Like at least, at least the first one or two times. And then when you're at the bottom, you feel like you're never going to get back to the top again. And I think what's interesting about entrepreneurism as a whole, especially after you've gone through that cycle a couple of times, the first time you get a bunch of money, like you're probably going to be, if you're younger, especially, you're probably going to be a little bit stupid with the money, like especially if you don't come from it, right? Like you're just like, woo, I made it. Let's spend it all. Like let's do crazy things. And then after you've lost it and you have to grind to get back to that spot again, you have a lot more perspective. Where I am right now is by far the largest business I've ever had any association to. And I feel more in line with the Ryan when I was grinding and making sure that I made ends meet. Once you've experienced all that great stuff or what seems like great stuff, you realize that that like 
that really doesn't have any value. You know, like it's your family and your friends and who's around when you're not at the top that matters. And I would way rather be that person than the flashy guy on the other side of money. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like you've taken, you know, a different turn as well with this new business. You know, laundry strips doesn't seem like the next thing after, you know, hearing that career. So why are you so, you know, passionate about this laundry strip and why is it such a game changer? Yeah, it's it's funny. Somebody on Facebook posted yesterday, they said, Oh, what did you think you were gonna be when you grow up? And I just joked and I said, <laughs> I said, I'm gonna be a laundry detergent guy. And she's like, Oh, you did it. I'm like, I'm kidding. I'm like, I didn't like have like I wasn't like watching Mr. Clean commercials as a kid and thinking like I was gonna have a gl- gl- like a glitter in my teeth, you know? Right. But uh, yeah, I always tell people that like I didn't like, you know, even five years ago, if you said, Are you gonna be involved with laundry? I would have said probably unlikely. I don't think I'd be able to disrupt the space. But it's interesting. I don't know if you have, do you have kids. Oh, I don't know. You don't? So it's funny. Like when you don't have kids, like, and I'm not like judging anybody or anything like that. This is just my personal experience. When I didn't have kids, I wasn't really super worried about the future for myself. Like the future mm-hmm. for myself is it's going to be what it's going to be and I'll just deal with it. But after I had kids, I just started thinking a lot about what the world has in store for for them. Because it's not just me that needs to survive. I want them to have a good life and and so on and so forth. So things like Elon Musk is talking about AI and all the bad things that it could potentially <laughs> do, like Skynet type things. And I'm thinking about like, you know, global overpopulation, like, is there going to be enough food for people, climate change? Like there, there's so many things. And but uh, my wife was pregnant and it was like 2018 and we're my kids and I were watching a YouTube show. It was like, they love, kids love like those unboxing shows. And I watched it for long enough that I was like, just kind of getting like disgusted with the consumerism a little bit. But mm. I mean, kids, kids don't know. Kids just like, kids dopamine. They want surprises and stuff. So anyways, we're watching the show and on the show, there's like this treasure chest they're opening. And the treasure chest was wrapped in plastic and the treasure chest itself was made of plastic. And when they opened it up, there was like 10 toys on the top rack and they were all wrapped in plastic in a plastic shell and then the toy itself was plastic. And then they pulled the rack out after opening all this plastic and having plastic garbage everywhere. And they're doing this outside on a playground too. So I don't even know what they did with all of it. But then the second layer, again, there was like another like 20 more toys all wrapped in plastic in a plastic shell with a plastic toy inside of it. And I was sitting there thinking like, if this is what our, like this is the future of for our children, like we're in trouble. And like, I kind of got sick of like virtue signaling. Like, I'm not a big virtue signaler, but like in private conversations with friends, we like kind of debate what the future has in store and stuff. And it's like, this is, there's got to be something that we can do. And it just like a few months earlier, Brad, one of the three co-founders, his wife's stepbrother had approached him at like a dinner party and said, Hey, you know, I invested in this patent for these laundry strips. And, you know, with your guys' subscription background, I think it might be something interesting that you guys could do. Maybe you could do like a dollar laundry club or something like that. And at the time when Brad had told me about it, you know, we're kind of like, it's pretty hard to make a product at that price point really work. Like, how are you, you know, the big boys have so much funding. They've already established their space. Like, it's just, it's almost impossible. And so we kicked it down the road. And then when I was watching this show, I'm like, I wonder how much plastic the laundry detergent bottles use up. And I looked it up and I was like, holy smokes, there's a billion laundry detergent bottles sold in North America every year. And only about 30% of those can be processed in some way. And like, I think it's only 10% that's actually recycled. So like, I think 20% is like burned with some energy recapture. And then 70% just ends up in landfills and some of that, you know, finds its way into oceans. So Kevin is our CTO. We asked him to set up a page. We could try it out. And we agreed that if we hit 150 customers in the first month, that uh, it would be worth pursuing. 
And we had, we had more than 1,500 people sign up to be a subscriber in the very first month, which, you know, that was a pretty clear path. Let's uh, go all in on this, you know? Yeah, that's pretty amazing. How did you guys design the subscription model that made it so successful right off the bat like that? I've had a, a bunch of random mentors over, over the years. And like one of the things that I've always found that, that stops me from getting moving is trying to know everything before I actually start. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, and I think this stops a lot of people is that they have to get everything perfect before they roll it out. And we were absolutely not perfect. So when we started out, done is better than perfect. And with the internet, you're lucky you can iterate, right? So when we first launched, we didn't have a way for customers to purchase the product that wasn't a subscription. That was problem number one. So you could only get a month to month subscription. So uh, like, I'll just point out some like fundamental flaws here on that. So with laundry detergent, you know, you have families that are like 10 people which they could get more than one package, that's fine. You have families that are four people. You have people that live alone. You have like really old people who live alone and they probably don't leave the house that much. So they, they don't do that much laundry. So when you have a monthly subscription that gives you 32 loads of laundry and you might have somebody that only does one load of laundry a week, what winds up happening is on the subsequent deliveries of the, of the product, they get it and they tell themselves, oh, I need to cancel. And then they put it with their other pack. And then by the time they built up three or four or five packages, every single time they look in their, in their cupboard now to do laundry, they're reminded of the fact that they're getting these negative associations with your brand. And like the next time that they need laundry detergent, are they gonna go, like they have like this dissonance tied to your brand and they're not gonna wanna purchase from you again. So like that was the first mistake, or there's two mistakes there, not allowing people to buy a single, we, we would allow them to if they reached out to us, but not giving them an option to buy without a subscription was the first screw up. And then the second screw up was by not giving them frequency options because everybody has different requirements for, for how much laundry they do. And if you look at like our different cohorts, so like if you were to look at like before we made it so people could pick their frequency versus afterwards, the rate at which the lifetime value increased on the, the segment where they could pick their own frequency was way higher because by default, if you only have monthly subscriptions, you're going to get a lot of people want to cancel right off the top because you know they don't need they don't need to get a package every month. So your numbers are right. always going to look terrible. I mean, regardless of the numbers of the numbers, they don't necessarily paint the perfect picture when you only have one offer. But you want your numbers to look good too. So if you're going to start a subscription, you want to make sure that you let people opt out on their first purchase and then let them choose how often or how much they want to get. What I really love about your guys' business is that you are both doing like something that's very impactful, but you're also very highly profitable at the same time. Can you talk about how you've approached maximizing both the impact and the profits for the company? A big mistake that I think a lot of people, well, it's maybe not a mistake, but a lot of way a lot of people approach customer acquisition, especially in like 2019, 2020, where people really lean on Facebook hard and you hear a lot of marketers talking about what their return on ad spend is and this, that, and the other thing. Well, also the rise of drop shipping. Like all of these things have kind of made this expectation that you need to make money on the first sale. Like you sure. like if you're not making money on the first sale, like I think a lot of people just quit. And they forget that the real value in business, especially when you're you have customers, is in your ability to have a relationship with that customer and to be able to sell them 
additional, not, not just the product that you originally sold to them, but also other products in the future. So like I look at from a growth and profitability standpoint, I'm looking, I'm more concerned about how do I have the best customer experience and what can I offer them in addition to what they already have? Or how could I sell them more of what they already have in a way that makes sense where they're happy, they're able to promote the product to other people. And you know, again, at the end of the day, we need to be profitable in order to continue doing all the great things that we're doing, which is like eliminating plastic and donating to charity. But I mean, at the end of the day, we also need to feed our families and the hundred and something employees that we have. A really good example of you guys, or you specifically building a subscription box that basically you know went beyond the product and made that customer experience really, really well was the outdoor gear box you did with Explore Magazine. Can you explain what you did with that box that made it more than just a product? I think uh, everything gets commodified over time. So, you know, the subscription the subscription box market is kind of the same thing. And there's like one of the challenges with subscription boxes is that people eventually get enough stuff and and they no longer uh, need to be part of the the business anymore. Which which you're probably not going to be generating future revenues from them. Which you know you never want to happen. So we looked at the problem of like, okay, well if they know if they don't need stuff anymore, which we're generally trying to not be a, a stuff pusher. What's something that we can do that's going to like, how can we provide them value to their life? So with Explore, our model was you'd be excited to get the first package because you wanted the outdoor gear. It would be themed. But what was cool about it is you're not just going to go and put that box on your shelf because inside the box, there's also these challenges that comes in the box. And then there's also like weekly challenges and monthly challenges and quarterly challenges and annual challenges inside the community. So that pulls you into the community, which we have like speakers and stuff like that that come on and, and we can do like AMAs. But what's really valuable is it actually gets people to start, you know, living the life that they want. So people buy subscription boxes or people buy things because they have an expectation that their life is going to be different after they have this thing. That's just like, that's why people buy things, right? So right. people want to be adventurous. So they buy the subscription box. They think it's going to get them outdoor adventure. But that's not what actually does. It, like for us, we find that the challenges themselves where people they take pictures of it and it proves that they did it. And I mean, that also gives us assets that we can use for advertising, but they sign up for the, the gear and they wind up sticking around because they love the challenges. And eventually they will have enough stuff that they don't need to get stuff from us anymore. So we came up with like outside of the regular box, we also have the Adventure Challenge Club, which is they continue to get access to the same group. They get all the challenges. Some of them might be tweaked a little bit, so they don't need a very particular uh, thing from the, the, the product they still get the magazine and digital version and they get to continue with the benefits that actually change their life versus just the stuff and you know we found a huge percentage of the people that stop wind up wind up switching over and you know they don't they don't want to quit that like they, they want to quit the stuff they don't want to quit the lifestyle that, that we've helped them get built right yeah and they're also buying into a community of people you know that are like them have you guys done anything with true earth that has helped with your, you know, quick growth in terms of like creating community or a network effect or anything with the subscription. We were planning on having a full community, and it's probably it's very probable in the future. It's just the one thing is that the, a community, especially like a Facebook group, is is like a lot of work. And we, you know, we had probably like three or four thousand people in in the other community 
And but like with a product like this, we have over two hundred thousand customers. It, it, it gets right. pretty substantial. So we, we we've been bouncing around the idea of how we would manage that. But outside of that, we we do have like a very good community, regardless of actually not having an actual place for them to kind of get together. But they've built this grassroots movement. We call it the True Earth Movement. And the people who are our customers, we call them our change makers. And they're the ones who are responsible for the growth. Like it's amazing how many people chime in on the ads, they comment on everything. And they're happy that they're not only having an easier way to do laundry, but the, the, the decisions that they're making are helping change the potential future of the planet. And that's kind of like one of our slogans is like little, little hinges swing big doors. And it might not seem like much for you to change your laundry detergent, but when, you know, a million people eventually all change their laundry detergent, that's a massive impact on the world. Right. And what's cool is like people will have a subscription and then when we have like a, a sale or something like that, and we'll have like 10, you can buy 10 packs for a slightly discounted rate. People will buy these 10 packs and like, we have so many people wanting to give them as in, in stockings or for Christmas presents or like, it's crazy. Our customers, they're basically responsible for, for everything that's happened. Like if they weren't in there, if they weren't sharing with people, if they weren't like posting pictures on Instagram and social media and talking about, it, I don't know how many other laundry detergents you've ever seen people going crazy for on the internet. <laughs> like as much as I would like to take credit for everything, it's not, it's not me, it's not Kevin, it's not Brad. Like we've been lucky enough to facilitate this this community that's like taking the ball and running with it. I know you guys are also pretty big on like having a brand story and like treating your customers as the hero of that mm -hmm. story. What is the importance of a brand story for like a mission-driven business and how do you start crafting it so it speaks to your customers? Just to preface this, I used to think that like branding and stuff was stupid. Five or six years ago, I just thought like I, I was very into direct response. I thought like Branding was dumb. And like, I feel super ignorant that that was the way that I thought. I was just kind of like trashing something you don't know that much about. Mm -hmm. And story has got to be one of the most powerful tools uh, that exists for marketing. And I've said it on a couple other podcasts before. I, I almost would rather do the story before I start to really discover like who my avatar is, because I feel like the story almost, I, I kind of go back and forth on this, but the story, you know, you, you figure out like, who the villain is, who the hero is, what the hero looks like. And the brand is not the hero. The brand is like the guide, basically. If you're the customer, you're Luke Skywalker. I'm like, I'm like Yoda telling you, hey, man, you should learn to use the force. And the force <laughs> is the laundry detergent, right? And like, you can't have multiple villains. But the thing, what's cool about storytelling, and this is like part of the same reason that people like cry when they watch a movie. Like they know the movie's fake. They know that's not real. But when you tell a story, your brain can't differentiate between like a memory in your head and what you're watching on TV. Like it's not real, but you're still getting emotional about it. And I'm not saying to use that in a way where you're lying to people or, or being manipulative, but when people can position themselves in a story, they're going to be way more receptive to the message. And if, if they buy into it, their identity is going to get wrapped up in your brand. It's like PlayStation and Nintendo and Sega. And, you know, over the years, like back in like the early 90s, people were either a Super Nintendo fan or they're a Genesis fan. And they would like fight to the death. Or like a better example now is like Android and iPhone. I can't believe there's like religious wars on cell phone discussions <laughs> on Facebook. I, I like won't even participate in those anymore because like people literally cousins will like talk about like decapitating each other over like which phone they want. 
want. Like it's insane. And like, that's just, that is like the best example ever of identity tied to whatever story you want, right? Like when you can get people to that level, like that's a whole nother level. But when people will go to war on Facebook over like a stupid computer in your pocket, like that's wild. Yeah, and I think it's uh, really powerful when you have a you know, mission-driven business such as this to be able to easily position them as the hero. And, you know, you guys are fighting against plastic. It's really easy to have an enemy because nobody wants, you know, the plastic in the landfills or in the, uh, the oceans and whatnot. So it's really easy for them to get hooked into that story. Yeah, for sure. And like, if anybody's looking for like resources on this, the easiest way to get started, I have like nothing to do. I think his name is Donald Miller. He has a book called The Story, I think it's called Story Brand. And there's like Mad Lib, fill in the blank documents that are free tied to that, that you can just go and fill out and have like a rough story. And you can kind of test your villain on people if you want. Your friends and family see how how evil they think it is. Or like maybe there's another villain. Like, I don't know, you just want to have one villain. Though. That's the, the general framework. If you read that book, you will know how to write a story. When these people have, you know, taken in your story, they're part of your community. How do you continue to like nurture and support that emotional connection you have with them? Yeah. So there's a lot of different things. Like we do a lot of micro content on social media. So the people that follow us, like we try to tell uplifting stories on Instagram and Facebook, just like different companies, different people doing great things on Instagram. We try to share a lot of leaders in like some of the Black Black Lives Matters leaders, some some people that might not get the voice that they deserve. Like we try to support other 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 communities that we believe are doing good things. But you know, the two biggest things from month to month that we try to do is make sure that we keep our customers and our, our change makers updated on how many plastic bottles that they've helped keep out of landfills because that's a huge thing. And then we donate a lot of product on their behalf. So when you buy a subscription, we match your donation and like we've got arrangements with like food banks all across North America. We, like you said, we've donated to Ghana, to mothers in need over there. Right now is a really difficult time for a lot of people. Like COVID's yeah. making a lot of people not have jobs. And if people can't take care of themselves, there's no way that they can eventually get to a point where they're back on their feet and then they can be part of our community. So, you know, lift people up. And what's that cliche saying? Like rising tides lift all ships, right? Have you guys found that putting your mission out there in the forefront and leveraging that like in your marketing outperforms some of the other things? Yes and no. Like it's funny because if you go to the site, we're not really like super aggressively showing off any of those numbers. It's kind of more something that we share once you're inside the community. We put out a little bit of press and once in a while we'll we'll share that. But I honestly have not split tested, split tested it. The laundry jugs thing we are super proud of. But as much as I want people to use our product, I don't want to like psychologically manipulate them into buying our right. product because we're we're donating product on their behalf. Like yeah, we do it. And sometimes we'll mention it in, in certain things, but I don't really have a fantastic answer for you on that. But I don't, I, I just, I just don't want to be manipulative. So like once they're in the door, we're, you know, a lot more open to, to talk about it. And we talk about it a little on social media, but it's not, we don't want you to buy just because you want to donate. We want you to buy because you love the product. And then we want you to stick around because you know, we're doing good things. I think that's an excellent approach because you see a lot of companies who may do like this greenwashing where they kind of put that up front and they're not actually doing as much as they say that they're doing. Yeah. I mean, and that's a slippery slope, right? Like what if something changes in your business model somewhere down the line and like, it's not financially viable to donate on that same level. We do good things together. We're going to continue to do th good things together, but I don't want you to only buy because you want to, you know, you feel guilty about something and you need to donate. For sure. What challenges do you guys face as a su subscription service that maybe aren't necessarily apparent in other types of business models? 
There's a lot more customer service that's required. Like we've been continuously trying to like upgrade the tools that are available, like the self-serve tools, and it's um, alleviated a bit of stress on our customer service. That's one of the biggest things that we've been working on is trying to increase our response time, our shorten our response time so that we can, again, everything comes down to the customer experience. But like that's the one thing that people don't account for when you get into subscriptions is that once you hit a certain tipping point, you really can't be a solo printer and like have a, you can't have a subscription box for sure because there's so many pieces to that. You probably could get by for a little while in like a single product environment, but your customer service is going to need to expand at some point because people don't know how to cancel sometimes. And sometimes people want to like maybe change the version of the product they have or the frequency. And like not everybody... As much as you want to simplify your tech, there's always going to be somebody that can't just quite can't quite figure it out. Not everybody's tech savvy. Mm, yeah, you've been in business with your partners for quite a long time. One going back all the way to the '90s. What has made that relationship like so strong that it could go through you know multiple different businesses, ups and downs, failures, and whatnot? That's a, that's a good question. It's pretty uncommon that w- what we have. And I think there's a few things. Well, for, first of all, Kevin and I have been friends since before kindergarten. Which we're almost forty. Not a lot of people are like still friends with their kindergarten friends. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. But then Brad, Kevin, and I all have entirely different skill sets, and we're, we've gotten pretty good at kind of like identifying what falls into each person's lane. We just we basically call it lanes. It's like we're driving down a highway, and we have three lanes. And every once in a while, somebody will slide over into the other lane. But we, we've kind of got an understanding of who handles what particular thing. We have quite a few meetings to kind of like make sure that we all stay on point. But we, we've gotten to the point where our communication is very good too. Like, you know, we're, we're all able to be kind of blunt with each other and nobody really takes anything too hard emotionally. And we recognize when, when somebody's having a rough day or is, is having a rough week or a month and is stressed. And we're lucky that we have that dynamic. But if I was to start another business and, and, and have to have entirely new relationships like I've had bad bad relationships in business too and I find that almost everything shitty that they're I don't know I swear sorry everything bad yeah, you're good. <laughs> everything bad that comes like out of out of business relationships typically comes from misunderstanding and poor communication and that probably goes for regular relationships too which you know I'm still not an expert on communicating there but every time that I've had something go bad it was because somebody was afraid to just communicate what it was that needed to be communicated. Is there a time in your guys' time working together that you know maybe was a rough patch or whatever, but you were able to you know work through it? And how did you kind of get over that? There's times where I probably spent too much money on marketing and didn't say anything, or some tech went down, and or Kevin Kevin handles all of our tech. There was like maybe a couple of days where like a bunch of stuff was all kind of like seemed like it was when, when stuff rolls downhill, it seems like it comes down in an avalanche. And he could have been overwhelmed. And then we're getting frustrated because he's having a trouble diff- difficulty communicating it, but it's mostly because he's underwater. Or like, I mean, the same can go for for any of us, right? Like we've all kind of been there. Everybody's been at fault for something at some point. But if you have partners, I would recommend everybody read the book Traction by Gino Wickman. What's really good about it is like there's this level 10 meeting, which is like supposed to be every week in a department. And after you go through some metrics and the big projects you're working on for the quarter, every week everybody talks about like if there's any like issues or like we basically have issues and fires. 
So if there's like an issue with something, we bring it up and we try to address all the issues that we can, like any given point. We just number them. When an issue is done, we delete it off the list. And that way, whenever there's anything bubbling up to the surface, we have to, we're forced to communicate about it and deal with it because it's on the list. It's such a simple thing to do. It also prevents you from feeling like you're not being heard or like you're, whether it's a tech issue or like a relationship with somebody else or whatever it is, like your business, you address business issues and you move forward. And it's like the, the traction system is really good because it, not only does it help you address those issues, but it helps you identify what are the big projects for this quarter that we need to accomplish to move the business forward. And you're constantly going through the cycle of iteration and the, these issues that pop up on a weekly basis. If you look at it from like a conversion rate optimization type lens, you're basically optimizing your business systems and relationships every week so that you're able to make your business more effective. How do you think you've uh, changed the most in the last 20 years, either professionally or personally, since when you started out? Well, you know, a, a lot of things, man, like from things like thinking that I had to do everything myself and learning how to delegate. I'm also like pretty ADD. So I, I have struggles with focusing and like organization a little bit. So for me, like learning how to build systems around the way that I am, like I can't change the way that my brain works. And I'm not a victim. Like I don't have like a disease. You know, what it is is that my brain works a certain way and I have to build a support team around me that um, under, like know how I work. And like I have to build routines that allow me to, to kind of like do the things that I'm good at and delegate the things that I'm not. So as a result, the people that are on my team are all very structured because that's not something that I'm good at. So like understanding what I'm good at and what I'm not good at has allowed me to grow as a team just by virtue of I know, I know who I need around me so that I can be the best version of me. So I know the things I suck at, you know, and I'm, I'm totally fine with, like, I can sit with it. I'm, I'm never going to be the guy that's like perfectly organized. I just, I can't. But as like a human being, early 20s, you know, standard male, insecurity, all the fun stuff that I don't, I, I don't know everybody goes through it. Again, I can only speak for myself, but like, you know, levels of depression, anxiety, and not being good enough and needing to look a certain way or needing to be built a certain way or like 2000s were a different time than it was now, but like, you know, needing to be like super masculine and all that stuff. I think I've changed and I'm not like out there trying to be like the man. I'm not trying to be like the, this alpha dude, but I want to be able to contribute impact instead of not just about money. You know, like when I was in my 20s, it was about I needed money so that I could get a Lamborghini, which I never got a Lamborghini, thank God. I don't think I could look at things objectively then like I can now. But those things don't motivate me. I, I haven't taken more money since we started this business. I don't pay myself more money. When I used to get overwhelmed with business in the past, and it would be, what is this all for? What is this all for? Is this just for money? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I killing myself? Why am I juggling 800 balls at once just to, to, to get more money? I don't get like that now. Like, if I get overwhelmed now, I get to think that what I'm doing, like, sure, there might be money at some point down the end of the road, and that's, you know, going to allow me a little more autonomy. But like, for me, it's a lot easier to feel, to sit in overwhelm when you can have an impact on, on both the world and on people that, that, that aren't in a good place in their life. I love that. Well, before I get to my last question, where can everybody find you and the stuff that you're doing? You can find True Earth at www.tru.com. E-A-R-T-H. Um, there's no E on true. 
And there's no .com or anything. It's just a .earth domain. So that's true.earth. And you can find me on LinkedIn. If you search, if you search Ryan McKenzie True Earth, I'm sure you'll find me. I'm on Facebook too. I think I have a business page. It's the Rye McKenzie, T-H-E-R-Y-E McKenzie. And I'm sure if you look hard enough, you'll find me on, on the regular Facebook as well. Awesome. My last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? I think that you're going to have people that are going to be able to make big impact. And I think regular everyday people, and I'm not saying that they're, they're less or more than those other people, but if they don't have a way that they can make big impact over time, it's never too late to like start making little changes. So laundry detergent is just an example. There's like a million other things that you can do, whether it's messing around with putting solar panels on your roof. I mean, that's probably an expensive one, but the things like to maybe walk into the grocery store instead of driving or like my kids, when they go to school, they, they have like silicone bags that they bring their snacks in, but we don't give them any garbage when they go to school and everything that they bring to school they literally have to bring it home and you can get your kids like almost like programmed early on to not want to create waste by making their lunches in a way that like everything is returnable and reusable so little changes add up to big impact like when you think of every single person on this planet made one small change the amount of the impact would be absolutely insane if every person made five small changes like i can't say that it would eliminate a lot of our problems but you, you could even just go and plant a tree like you know go plant Go plant 10 trees a year. Like that's a huge impact. And anybody can do that. Trees are cheap. Yeah. Once you start doing some of those habits, they start to compound on one another and they become easier habits for you. I thought I read somewhere the other day that we need about 27 trees per person to to offset our carbon footprint. So could every person just go and plant two trees a month or a little bit more, you know, like then maybe three in summer? It's a pretty easy thing to do. I mean, it's not easy, but if you think of it like that, 27 trees all you know, that's doable. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Keep evolving.